Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, your host, and I am traveling for the next couple of weeks. I'm road tripping out to my grandparents' farm in Illinois. So um, to take a little break this week before we plunge into next month, which is a theme which I'll talk to you about in one second, I am re-releasing one of my old and, dare I say, my most iconic episodes. I'm not saying it's iconic because I'm so great. I'm saying it's iconic because the person we're about to talk about, her story, there's so many twists and turns. It's so extreme. It's so incredible. It's it's a lot. When I tell people about it, just like in passing in the park, they like don't know how to react. (laughs) Their faces freeze and they're like, which part of the story? Like, am I screaming? Am I crying? Am I whooping with joy? I don't know. So this is episode 11. It aired in, oh gosh, I think the end of 2018 on Poulon Devi, the bandit queen. Now, if you haven't heard this episode before, great. Welcome. If you have, but you listened to it back in 2018, listen to it again. I just re-listened to it for the first time in ages and I had forgotten so much about her story and I'm pretty sure it holds up. This is also going to be like a little glimpse into Criminal Broad's history because you'll hear my old theme song. I mean, it's the same song, but it's the vintage version of it. And I used to spend a lot of time trying to find music that was at least vaguely from the country and maybe even era that each episode took place in. So you'll hear that. I like it. I like how it adds to the atmosphere of the story. I just had to stop doing it because it just took so much time um, each week finding these songs. But you'll get to hear that. Okay, before we go into the story, next month we have a theme. I've said this several times now. Houston, we have a theme. The theme of the month is sisters the most ominous word you've ever heard right no but i kept getting listener requests for cases involving sisters and so i said to myself tori let's do an entire month on sisters and see if we can figure them out so if you meet me back here next week we're kicking off our sister month with a bang and a lot of blood unfortunately sorry And it's going to be great. (laughs) So um, the last thing I wanted to tell you, nothing to do with sisters, but is very good news, is I'm recording this on Thursday. So like it's only been a day since last week's episode came out, if that makes sense. It's only been 24 hours. And we've already raised over $100 for Lloyd Dean, who is the son of Marie Dean Arrington. I talk about him in the last episode, but I've corresponded with him and he has been in jail half a century plus for a crime he committed when he was a teenager. And I'm just so grateful, you guys. I'm getting little notifications on my phone every time you Venmo me with notes like, for Mr. Dean. It's really nice. It's really nice. I'm just happy that I have listeners who care about these things. So thanks. I'll put my Venmo in the show notes again this time if anyone else wants to give to him. But anyway, thank you. All right, without further ado, let's revisit a case of Criminal Broad's past, the case of Poulon Devi. Is it a sin? Is it a crime? 
Hello, and welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. My name is Tori Telfer. I am the author of Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History, which is a book about real-life historical female serial killers that you should be able to find at your friendly local bookstore. Now, the woman I'm here to tell you about today is a genuine badass. She is someone I'm so excited for you to hear about, and I know I know, I say I'm excited about every episode, but I really am. But this woman is special. I think she is the most, uh, well, she's definitely the most badass woman we've covered yet because we've covered a lot of women who are just plain bad. But she's also, this is also the most intense story I've covered yet. So with that in mind, two quick things. One, Unfortunately, this episode contains a number of instances of sexual assault, so if that is not something you want to hear or deal with right now, please skip ahead with my blessing, and I'll see you back here in a couple weeks for episode 12, which is going to be a romp through a world that's very different than this one. Second of all, my one of my primary sources for this episode was our protagonist's autobiography. Now, if you've read, <laughs> if you've ever read an autobiography, you know that they tend to be a little bit self-mythologizing. So um, there are so anyway, I try to keep that in mind. And also there are places where her autobiography conflicted with her biography, which conflicted with her like journalistic articles written about her. So when I tried to kind of find a middle ground between those, but I did sort of favor her autobiography for a reason that is perhaps not the most academic, but it was this. If there's one thing the world owes this woman, it's to hear her voice, to let her speak. You'll see what I mean in a minute. So anyway, without further ado, let's travel to the northern part of India in the 1960s. In 1979, just outside a rural village in northern India, police were shocked to find a man lying on the dirt, nearly dead, who had been beaten viciously. The man was missing teeth, his arms and legs were broken, but what was most notable was that his genitals had been crushed. There was a note left on top of his bleeding body that read, Warning, this is what happens to old men who marry young girls. The whole scene was gruesome, ominous, frightening, but you couldn't deny that it also had something like style. This was no ordinary crime, no run-of-the-mill beating by a random bully or a jaded debt collector. This was the work of someone longing for revenge, someone bringing an element of almost storytelling to their violence, someone who clearly wanted to be heard, to be seen, to be noticed, someone who wanted the police to know, I was here. I was here. She was here. The police must have had at least an inkling at this point of the girl who did this. There had been talk of her, a wild thing, a female demon on the loose. She'd appear in the night dressed like a policeman, screaming obscenities through a megaphone, and rampage through village after village, and then disappear again into the jungle. She was angry, and she brought her anger crashing down on those who'd wronged her. (laughs) 
In her autobiography, Pulan Devi says that she was born angry because her mother was angry. She was also born simply Pulan. The Devi, which meant goddess, was given to her later once she'd become a folk hero. Pulan meant flower, which was fitting because she was born in 1963 during a flower festival. It was a lovely origin story, but Pulan was born into serious poverty. Her family lived in a tiny village in northern India, in the state of Uttar Pradesh, and they belonged to the Mala caste, which was a subcaste of the Sudras at the bottom of the Hindu caste hierarchy. Malas were fishermen and boatmen and sometimes farmers like her father. The caste system was, is, rigid, feudal, oppressive, and to be born into a lower caste was to be born not just into poverty but into absolute powerlessness. The land where her family lived was what her biographer Mala Sen called bandit country, inhabited by people who have for centuries been contemptuous of the state but remain fearful of God. Her father owned a tiny scrap of land, but it was difficult to grow much there. Pulan had vivid memories of watching the rich men in her town eat mangoes, and she remembered longing so badly for one that she dared to ask for a slice and received a beating instead. Pulan was always getting beatings from the wealthier people of the village who didn't like her impudent nature, and from her own mother who was furious at Pulan and her three sisters for being girls. Boys brought in money. Girls cost money. Girls were walking liabilities. If they didn't starve during childhood, they might be raped during girlhood, dooming them to a life of worthlessness. If you could manage to get them married off, you had to pay a dowry to their husband's family. You certainly wouldn't waste any time teaching them to read. At one point, Pulan's mother raged that she was going to throw her daughters down the well and then fling herself down after them. The message was clear. As a lower caste woman in rural northern India, life was barely worth living. In contrast to her mother, who vacillated between extremely loving and furiously abusive, Pulan's father was a weak man who went through life with his head bowed. He believed that the poor should be quiet and subservient to the rich, but this infuriated Pulan, who was an exceptionally brave child born with a sense of rebellion and justice deep inside her bones. She may have been angry like her mother, but unlike her mother, she was determined to do something about it. It didn't take her long to realize why exactly her family was so poor. Her uncle, her father's brother had cheated her father out of his inheritance, taking all of her grandfather's land and leaving a mere scrap for Pulan's father. Because of that deception, Pulan's family now had to watch her uncle and his loathsome son, Mayadin, waltz around town drinking fresh milk, eating mangoes, and luxuriating in a thousand and one signs of superiority. They would harass Pulan's parents or send thugs to beat them up for no reason. They'd even steal from their meager stores of grain. Her father just kept his head down, subservient, but not Pulan. When she was only 10, she convinced her quiet older sister to come and sit with her smack dab in the middle of her horrible cousin's chickpea fields. This was their land, Pulan argued, sitting down and beginning to pluck plump chickpeas right off the plants. When Mayadeen came running over, screaming at them to leave, Pulan refused, saying that this was their land— in response, Mayadeen beat her over the head with a brick until she blacked out and then complained to the authorities and made sure her parents were beaten for good measure. 
This didn't stop Poulan, who tried to drag him off to court and then attacked him when he cut down their only tree, a valuable old neem tree, in retaliation. It was no use, though. She only succeeded in destroying her own reputation. Now, in the eyes of the village, she was a dangerous, headstrong girl. She was only 11 by that point, but she had to be married off as soon as possible. Poulan was so young that, during her wedding ceremony, she remembers thinking that after the ceremony she'd run outside and play with her little sister. Her husband was so foreign to her that she didn't even register what husband meant. All she knew was that here was this creepy, graying, 30-year-old widower named Puti Lal who was undergoing some sort of ceremony with her. Afterwards, the women kept telling her that she was a married woman now and the time for playing was over. Now, her parents had made an agreement with Putilal that he wouldn't bring her to live with him and that he certainly wouldn't touch her until she was of age. But after the ceremony, Putilal reneged on his promises immediately and dragged Poulan off as her mother sobbed. It was in Putilal's house, miles from home, that Poulan's first terrible violations happened. He told her that they were going to play a game and that he'd teach her how married people were supposed to behave. He then showed her what she called his serpent. Even though his fellow villagers and even his own father told him weakly that she was too young, no one stepped in to protect her. After about a year, she managed to escape him, but ironically, in her home village, being a failed wife was more of a social taboo than being an abused child bride. Poulan had been an outsider in her village when she tried to take on her much older cousin. She was now even more of a fallen woman. But that's not all. It seemed like there was something about her that the powerful men of her village just didn't like. She wouldn't bow to them. She wouldn't shut up when they wanted her to shut up, when they tried to beat her into silence. She wouldn't crawl into a corner of her father's house and live out her days as a shamed creature. And now she was back, a failed wife, just back, expecting to live with them again— It made them want to take whatever it was in her that kept her so, so alive, so buoyant, such a fighter, and stomp it out. Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsors. Our first sponsor is Daily Harvest. Okay, guys, I've been feeling a tiny bit under the weather recently. It's not coronavirus. Um, And I've wanted healthy things to make me better, to totally cure me, but I haven't had the energy to make them. Enter Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest delivers delicious food, all built on organic fruits and vegetables, right to your door. It takes literally minutes to prepare. You can keep it in your freezer until you're ready. I'm talking things like smoothies, grain bowls, almond milk, great to put in your smoothies, even flatbreads and ice cream that's magically made from healthy ingredients. So you can just like take it out of your freezer if you're feeling a little bit under the weather or if you're in a hurry, blend it or cook it, and like three minutes later, you'll have something healthy to eat. Get started today on the Daily Harvest lifestyle if you'd like to join me. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code CRIMINALBROADS to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code CRIMINALBROADS for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com, dailyharvest.com. 
Our second sponsor today is Molecule Mattress. I share a bed with two Pro Bowl quarterbacks, an Olympic swimmer, and a national women's soccer star, guys, believe it or not. Let me explain. Ha ha ha. I sleep on a Molecule mattress now, and so do many elite athletes across the world. Okay, they don't sleep on my Molecule mattress, but like we're all sleeping on Molecule mattresses at once. I myself am not technically an elite athlete, although I have been known to occasionally do a 28-minute bar class online, so (laughs) just save your applause. Um, But if elite athletes like Russell Wilson, my best friend, sleep on Molecule mattresses and say that it's their best sleep ever, then I'm like prone to believe them and also prone to be influenced by him. Molecule is cool to the touch. It has six times the airflow of regular old mattresses. So it keeps you cool, which helps with muscle recovery. It like has this thing called zone reflex layers so that whatever weird sleep position you sleep in, you won't wake up with a sore back or a stiff neck. So if you want to try for your deepest, most restorative sleep ever, you can order your Molecule mattress at onmolecule.com and you'll save 20% with promo code criminal. Oh my gosh, guys, that's 20%. And also, if you don't like it, you can sleep on it for 100 nights and then return it. No big deal. Again, you can save 20% with promo code criminal at onmolecule.com. Poulan's family was used to getting beaten by members of the cast above them, whether over a misunderstanding or just because the wealthy felt like it that day. Her parents' attitude was, shut up, curl into a ball, and pray that it's over soon. But to Poulan, that was absurd. So one day, when a couple of rich boys were trying to teach her a lesson by beating her into submission, she did something her mother had always told her she could do if she was in trouble. She grabbed the boy's penis, twisted it as hard as she could, and refused to let go. That night, the boy and his friends came to find her. Not only had she hurt him, but she had humiliated him, and that he could not stand. So he and one other man assaulted her in front of her parents, deliberately staging the violation to bring the most disgrace and shame possible to her family. Poulan later wrote, My spirit flickered like a lamp and began to fade. Afterward, she wanted to die. She ran to her mother's arms and begged her to throw her into the well. As if that weren't enough, the wealthy men of her village then framed her for a robbery, despite the fact that she had been in another village at the time visiting her sister. She was thrown into jail for this and raped repeatedly by the police, which was a horribly common experience for any lower caste woman who ended up at the police station, even if they were there to report a crime. When she returned home, It was like some tenuous social code had been officially snapped in the village. Suddenly, Poulan was considered the property of any man who wanted her. She screamed and gnashed her teeth and began sleeping in trees to avoid them, but the men, wealthy, powerful landowners called Takurs, who belonged to the class above her, just kept showing up at her family's house, asking where they could find her. Again, Poulan refused to be quiet about what was happening to her. She'd run to the houses of her abusers and stand outside, screaming, Kill me! Kill me! Come on, I'll kill you too and it'll be over! 
the village authorities, panicked, would try to impose sanctions on her parents, saying that her family couldn't drink from the communal well because their daughter was so unclean, and Poulan would defy them, striding up to the well and drinking from it as if she were a queen. She walked up to the rich boy who had raped her in front of her parents and told him, point blank, that she had a rifle and she was going to kill him. She noted with fascination that even though she had no gun in her hands, he was terrified. One day, a disgusting old Takur came to the village like so many men before him, asking for Pulan. He said that he'd heard you could do whatever you liked with her. Pulan replied, oh, okay, I'll go get her, and instead came back with a tree branch. As she whipped him into a bloody pulp, she screamed, you wanted Pulan, you've got her. It must have stymied these upper caste men who thought they would break her that she still hadn't broken. The girl simply was not cracking no matter how much they abused her. And so they started to fear her. They needed to get her out of there, away from their drinking water and their grain and their submissive wives. So they hired a group of bandits to come and kidnap her and take her away for good. was terrified when she found herself being marched through the jungle by a group of ragtag male bandits dressed in filthy police uniforms. She had no idea what was going on. She just knew that these bandits, called dacoits, were known for their viciousness. At least some of them were. Certain dacoits were rapists and murderers, no better than the men she was leaving behind. Others were practically folk heroes, stealing from the rich and redistributing to adoring villagers. The bandits who'd taken her were comprised of two castes. Some were Malas, like her, and others were Takurs, belonging to the same caste that had so repeatedly violated her in her hometown. She kept making desperate eye contact with one of the Malas, a young man named Vikram, who seemed nicer than the others. He wasn't explicitly showing her any mercy, but she thought he might be sympathetic to her, since at least they were members of the same caste. In sharp contrast, the leader of the Takur bandits kept making jokes about violating her. This man, Babu Gujar, was a disgusting brute who used banditry as a quick path to bloodshed and rape. Pulan doesn't say whether or not he carried out his jokes, though her biographer says that he did, but tensions had already been growing between him and Vikram, and one night, while Babu was at least attempting to rape Pulan, a gunshot rang out, and Babu slumped over on top of Pulan, dead. This was the first time in Pulan's life when a man had defended her. Her poor, beaten-down father could only cower and beg when people came to assault her. Her husband, the police, and members of the upper castes had only ever abused her, but Vikram was different. Now that Babu was dead, Vikram awkwardly declared that she was his mistress, and while this must have been terrifying to Pulan at the time, she realized soon that it seemed to be a move designed not to violate her, but to protect her. Vikram said that if she stayed with him and his bandits, she'd be safe, and that he'd help her avenge herself on anyone who ever hurt her. He made his bandits swear to treat her like a mother or sister. Most importantly, he said that he wouldn't sleep with her unless she asked him to. 
In her autobiography, she describes this moment, their unofficial marriage ceremony, in swoony, romantic terms. She says that he wiped away her tears and kissed her gently. She says that it was the first time she'd ever been kissed. Imagine the utter terror that coursed through the veins of Puti Lal, Pulan's first husband, when she showed up at his door with a raving squad of bloodthirsty bandits behind her, looking like an avenging angel, like an incarnation of the warrior goddess Durga herself. The bandits dragged Puti out to the street and beat him, then handed him over to Pulan, who sprang on him as the memories of his abuse flooded her brain. She later wrote that she was driven half-mad to be able to finally quench my thirst for violence. This was the man who had come at her with his serpent when she was 11 years old, who had introduced her to the depths of fear and degradation. In a frenzy, Poulon turned on that disgusting serpent, whipping it, then stabbing it, then crushing it with her own shoes. When she was finished, she left him for dead on the outskirts of town, positioned to catch the eyes of the police, with that note, Warning, this is what happens to old men who marry young girls. From then on, Poulon took to gang life quickly, though she had not chosen it, and though being the only woman in the group would often wear on her. She and the men would roam through the jungle, eating all the mangoes they wanted from trees, those mangoes that were so forbidden to her as a child. It was a life of freedom, though it wasn't an easy life. They walked about 25 miles a day and ate mostly at night, always on the lookout for police. She learned to use a rifle, how to talk to informants, how to plunder the houses of the abusers, how to beat the flesh of rapists. She wore a khaki police uniform as a disguise and was often able to pass as a young male officer. She found out that her fellow bandits were just like her. They, too, had been caught up in land disputes, got no justice from the police, and so turned to a life of crime in order to enact their own wild justice on those who depressed them. At one point, the gang swung by her home village to give her parents money, and Poulon was shocked to find that the village was now terrified of her. They groveled at her feet. They begged her for mercy, afraid that she'd gun them down. They brought her garlands of flowers and offerings of sweets, calling her a goddess. Even her evil cousin, Mayadeen, the source of all her woes, came to her in rags, tripping over himself as he raved about how amazing she was and how he'd always been a fan. She would have killed him then and there, but Vikram told her that killing family was an act of violence she'd never be able to recover from. So she forced him to give some land back to her father and let him slither away. To slake her desire for vengeance, though, the gang found her cousin's brother-in-law, and Poulan shot him. It was her first killing. She called it simple and terrible. When the police heard that she'd taken a life, they put a reward on her head. Poulan felt no regret. What they called a crime, she said, I called justice. Years before he'd ever met Poulan, Vikram had befriended an older bandit named Sri Ram, a Takur who taught Vikram a lot about the ways of banditry. Sri Ram had been in jail for years, but now he was out and he wanted to be pals with his old buddy Vikram again. 
Now, Vikram was kind and trusting and respected this man as his guru, but all the other bandits absolutely hated Sri Ram, especially Pulan, who saw him for the utter scumbag that he was. She defied him at every turn, and Sri Ram hated that, though he hid it under a saccharine layer of devotion to Vikram. Now that Sri Ram and his gang of Takurs had joined up with Vikram's gang, caste problems began to plague the men again. Tensions ran high, and Vikram and Pulam began sleeping apart in case of an ambush. One day, as the gang was talking to a villager, someone shot Vikram in the back. Sri Ram denied that he had anything to do with it, but he had been conveniently absent during the gunfire and reappeared right afterward, playing innocent. Vikram almost died of the wound before they could find a doctor who'd treat him without telling the police who he was. In order for Vikram to recover in peace, he and Pulan took off for Nepal, where Pulan experienced for the first time in her life the joy of being someone ordinary, someone who didn't always have to be looking over her shoulder, afraid of violence. She and Vikram were able to walk around holding hands in public like your average non-bandit couple. They even went to the movies together, though she almost ran out at one point, thinking that the fighting on screen was real. Really, she could have stayed there forever, but Vikram desperately wanted to return to India and take his revenge on Sri Ram. When they got back, Vikram wanted everyone to know they were back, and so, since he was a stylish bandit with a flair for presentation that definitely rubbed off on Pulan, he fixed a stamp up that said, Pulan and Vikram are back from heaven. The two of them used it to stamp the doors of their future victims. A little personal branding. Their very names weaponized. But Sri Ram was still part of the gang, still slithering around, whispering filthy things to Pulan and then paying ingratiating lip service to Vikram. Oh, so sorry you got shot. How unfortunate that anyone would want to hurt you. Pulan knew that he was absolutely untrustworthy. And at one point, her nerves were so frayed that she begged Vikram to just let her shoot Sri Ram as he slept. But Vikram said no. That was dishonorable, he said, to shoot someone when they were vulnerable like that. That exchange would haunt Pulan forever, because Sri Ram wasn't like Vikram. He didn't care about killing honorably. He didn't care if you were asleep. One night, Vikram and Pulan decided, for a reason they couldn't really articulate, to sleep in the same bed again. They had been sleeping apart in case of an ambush, but that night they were exhausted and just wanted to be together, and so they curled up into each other's arms in the middle of the jungle and fell into a deep sleep. Sometime later, Pulan woke in a groggy panic with the smell of something sickly sweet in her nostrils and the sound of gunfire all around her. And next to her, Vikram was still there, but he was moaning and bleeding out, and whispering to her that he was dying. She realized that she had been chloroformed and that Sri Ram was standing right there, firing bullets into her lover's chest. She begged him to kill her instead, but it was too late. Vikram was gone. Before she even knew what was happening, she was being dragged off by Sri Ram. He took her to a nearby village, displayed her in front of all the wealthy men there, and told the Takurs to have their way with her. For three weeks, any man who wanted to assault her 
was welcome to do so. It was a montage of horror that Poulan would never really talk about for the rest of her life. Or if she did mention it, she would often use euphemisms, like saying that they made a mockery of her. Finally, she heard Sriram's gang talking to a Brahmin, a holy man, a member of the highest caste there was, and this holy man, this priest, was asking for a turn with her. She couldn't bear the thought that a holy man could be like all the others and begged him to spare her, but once they were alone together, the Brahmin whispered that he was there to help her escape. He gave her water and a gun and helped her over the wall of his courtyard. Poulan was free again, but she was completely alone, running for her life and back to sleeping in trees, or at least partially sleeping. My hunger for vengeance was so strong, she said later. It woke me in the night. to avenge Vikram's death, Poulan decided it was time to form her own gang. I wanted men driven like me by a hunger for vengeance, she said, and so she began to interview potential gang members to see just how serious they were about the business of revenge. She made them swear to think of her as a brother, not a woman, and she found a lieutenant, Man Singh, to be her right-hand man. She then tied a red cloth around her head, a symbol of vengeance, and began hunting down Sri Ram. As a bandit, her reputation grew and grew until villagers in the territory thought of her as larger than life, a bandit queen driven by cosmic anger. This actually helped Poulan, the real girl, because people would pass her on the street without a second look, never once thinking that this diminutive policeman, or if she was wearing a sari, this humble village lass, could be Poulan Devi, the great and terrible. But she was great and terrible. She would scream into a megaphone as her gang looted a village, calling for Sri Ram to show his face and stop hiding like a dog. She would hunt down the men who'd watched her be raped and beat them between the legs with her rifle butt. I crushed, burned, and impaled, she said. She would force them to name the names of everyone they'd ever assaulted. One old man listed all the girls in the village, and then some of the young boys, his own daughter, and several animals. She tortured him by cutting off body part after body part and then had one of her men deliver the coup de grace. She would humiliate them as they'd humiliated her, stripping them naked and forcing them to dance, getting the villagers to sing an ominous song with lyrics like, what are we going to do with him, kill him or make him dance? Hers was a class-based revolution grassroots, DIY. Here's how her biographer, Mala Sen, explains the larger significance of what she was doing. Until the early 1970s, most dacoit gangs had consisted of upper-caste men who had provided a degree of protection to those of their community, but now, it seemed, the tables were turning. It was a process that was to dominate the whole of Indian political life through the 1980s and into the 1990s, with those of the lower castes suddenly aware of their potential for power and their ability to demand fundamental changes at all levels of society. The villagers loved Poulan, welcoming her and her men with open arms, hiding them in their houses, and feeding them royally. At one point, villagers even brought bedding and mosquito nets into the jungle so that Poulan could sleep in the open, as she preferred, but in queenly comfort. 
She was Robin Hood to them, looting liquor stores and jewelry shops and handing out rum and bangles to the thrilled, impoverished young people who gathered around her. During one such violent celebration, an 11-year-old girl came up to Pulan, clearly unafraid of her fearsome reputation. Pulan filled her lap with jewelry and rupees until it was overflowing. It was an extravagant gesture. Perhaps she saw something of herself in that brave little girl, who was the exact same age that she had been when she was given jewelry to wear on her wedding day. Pulan never actually got to kill Sri Ram, which must have driven her mad, because his own brother shot him during a debate over a woman. But revenge was had, revenge was most certainly had, though Pulan coyly denied any involvement in it. On Valentine's Day, 1981, the year Pulan turned 18, 22 Takur men from the village of Behmai were lined up along the bank of a river, asked to kneel, and then shot at close range so many times that the soil was still soaked with blood days later. Pulan always denied that the massacre was her doing, but her lieutenant, Man Singh, said that Behmai was the village where Sri Ram had killed Vikram and raped Pulan, and so this was their revenge. In one interview, Pulan said of the Takurs who'd been shot, they're dogs, dirty dogs. I won't say more. Police ramped up their search for Pulan after the Behmai massacre, and pressure began to build for her to surrender, especially as she was wanted on almost 50 counts of murder, kidnapping, and looting. People told her that she was so famous by then she could set forth the terms of her own surrender, but she didn't know who to trust and she wasn't sure that authority figures would respect her terms. She knew that she didn't want to surrender in her home state of Uttar Pradesh, where the furious and embarrassed police were sure to shoot her on the spot. But her men were growing thinner and life was growing ever more dangerous, and so eventually, two years after the massacre, she agreed to hand herself over to the police of a different state. She set the terms. She and her gang would not be hanged. Her family would be kept safe and given land. Her gang would be fed in jail. They would only spend eight years behind bars, and so on. The actual process of surrendering was long and fraught. Pulan was illiterate and paranoid and still very young, so the whole official process terrified her, and she occasionally became convinced it was all a trap. Journalists would try to interview her and take her photo, which only made things worse. But finally, on February 12th, 1983, 20-year-old Pulan and her men were escorted by police to a stage in front of a crowd of 7,000 villagers who'd gathered to see her, where they surrendered. She didn't know why there were so many people there. She didn't know yet that there were songs written about her and clay statues of her being sold in the marketplace. She didn't know that women of her caste had even started praying to her in secret. She just handed over her gun put a garland around a portrait of her patron goddess, Durga, and lifted her hands in a gesture of prayer in front of the enormous crowd. Though Pulan's legend would rise from that moment until people were making movies about her, life didn't magically become easy for her once she gave up her dacoit ways. She was in jail, after all, and the eight years came and went, and still she wasn't released, partially because she refused to go back to her home state to be tried, like the rest of her gang did. 
Her family was still plagued by troubles. Her father died, her sister died in what seemed like a staged suicide, and Takurs began bullying them again. The police of her home state started a rumor that she was suicidal, presumably so that if they managed to kill her, they could claim that she did it herself. At one point in jail, she was rushed to the hospital because of an ovarian cyst, and when she was being operated on, the doctors took out her womb, giving her a hysterectomy without ever asking for her permission. When her biographer, Mala Sen, who was there, asked why in the world this was necessary, the doctor chuckled. We don't want her breeding any more Poulan Devis, he said. One month before she was released from prison, a movie came out about her life called The Bandit Queen, a movie Poulan hated because of its graphic and all-consuming focus on her many rapes, especially its drawn-out scene of gang rape. She even threatened to set herself on fire outside of the theater if it ran, though she settled for suing them. She told a journalist from The Atlantic that she was angry the film never portrayed her conflict with her cousin Maya Dean, which was the source of all her troubles. There's absolutely no mention of my family's land dispute, she says. In the film, I'm portrayed as a sniveling woman, always in tears, who never took a conscious decision in her life. I'm simply shown as being raped over and over again. In fact, Poulan didn't even like the word rape, which she found too fancy. To her, the word felt one-off, too exceptional to describe something that was everyday life for many of the women she knew. She told that same journalist, It is assumed that the daughters of the poor are for the use of the rich. In the villages, the poor have no toilets, so we must go to the fields, and the moment we arrive, the rich lay us there. We can't cut the grass or tend to our crops without being accosted by them. We are the property of the rich. In February 1994, she was released from jail by a new chief minister of Uttar Pradesh, who was also from a lower caste, making the pardon a class victory and not just a personal one. Two years later, Pulan, the woman who'd once told her biographer that all politicians are thieves, ran for and was elected to Parliament, even though there was still a murder trial looming over her. She campaigned directly to the lower caste voters, 80% of the electorate, mind you, and vowed to uplift the downtrodden among them, becoming a beloved politician. The flair for drama that she developed as a bandit served her well as a politician. She would pop onto trains without warning or sweep into prison to see old friends and even went to Europe to promote her autobiography, even though she was technically still on parole. She also got married again. Her life may have taken an almost fairy tale turn, political power, international fame, but her past was always there, lurking behind the trees. If Poulan never forgot the names of those who'd wronged her, there were people out there who never forgot the name of Poulan Devi. One July day in 2001, she came home from the morning session of Parliament, got out of her car, and was shot five times by three masked men. The men were from an upper caste. They killed her in retaliation for the 1981 massacre of upper caste men. That massacre of upper caste men had been done in retaliation for the murder and gang rape of lower caste people. It was a vendetta for a vendetta for a vendetta. Violence heaped on violence heaped on violence. But let's go back to 1983, before Poulan had any idea that she'd be on TV, that she'd have a book out, that she'd be a politician. 
when she was preoccupied with the idea of surrender and what it would mean for her, for her men, when she was walking to that stage where thousands of people were waiting for her. The mostly male journalists who wrote about that day seemed disappointed that the avenging bandit queen of legend was a rather small young girl. They said her skin was too dark, her chest was too flat, her language was too filthy. They said she was a nymphomaniac, a bandit brat. One journalist called her a plain woman with a touch of the wild about her. But the photos of her surrender are incredibly compelling. There she is, a girl. A girl who not so long ago was sleeping in the jungle, in her khaki uniform, a red scarf around her hair, a cartridge belt slung around her chest. She holds her rifle with ease, and though she's so much smaller than the men around her, it's clear that she's their leader. Her face is preoccupied but resolute. She looks like someone who has real power. Not power that was conferred on her or stolen by her, but power that she was born with, power that was knit into her bones as she grew inside the womb of her angry mother, power that the world was never able to snuff out. Thank you so much for listening to this story. I hope you have become a super fan of Poulain Devi as I have. Feel free to get in touch at any time. Criminalbroads at gmail.com is my email address or message me on Instagram at criminalbroads. You can also check Instagram for photos of Poulain. I'm always putting up photos of these women so you can see what they actually looked like, which is always interesting. And feel free to reach out if you have any suggestions or requests for next time. Um, and if you like this episode, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It would mean the world to me. It would seriously, I would be so grateful. And now as we exit, I just want to play you a quick clip of Poulan talking, uh, being interviewed. I was unable to find a translation, but you'll be able to hear her, uh, you'll be able to hear her voice, which is just adorable. I mean, that sounds insulting. She she just has this cute, high-pitched voice. And then I'm going to round out by playing you the theme song of the movie The Bandit Queen. Now, she didn't like a lot of the movie, but this, this theme song is an old folk song about child marriages, and it is sung by a maestro singer, and it is just beautiful. I'll link to them on uh, the episode description. Anyway, thank you for listening. Bye. औरतों के बीच रहना और उनके बीच सब अच्छा अच्छी सबते वाले घर से भी होती हैं जो दहेज वहेज के केस में अंदर आ जाती हैं समझाती हैं ऐसा नहीं ऐसा कुछ वहां के कर्मचारी भी अच्छे थे जो एक हर एक चीज को अच्छे हिसाब से बताते ऐसा बोला करो ऐसे बैठा करो ऐसे खाना खाया करो Chupi 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.